Good morning. The first passage we are reading from today is from Matthew chapter 16 and verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the second passage we are reading from today is from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. Great to have you with us. And uh, thanks for joining us down here at high school. I realize you only get one really long weekend in the year and you've chosen to come to school on that weekend. But just like at high school, nobody wants to sit in the front row either. So it's good to keep, just to keep that habit. Um, but it's, um, it's great to be gathering here on Easter Sunday morning. And it's great to be here on the most important day of the Christian calendar, my wife's birthday. It's actually Mel's birthday today, so happy... No, just kidding. No, we're we're not going to do that, namely because I can't sing, she can. But if you do see her, make sure you say happy birthday. But it's great to... I'm I'm so glad you've chosen to spend your time with us here this morning, whether you're someone who has a faith background or not. It's great to be here and to be opening God's Word Um, because I think really as a culture, as Jacob was saying, there are many ways in which... I guess our culture would consider that we have maybe outgrown the Christian message, in particular Easter. And not just the kind of the story broadly, but specifically the stuff about miracles, a resurrection, all that kind of stuff is something that culturally we feel like we've maybe left behind either as individuals or en masse. But I want to put to you that this is not one of those things that you grow out of. There are many things that we grow out of, aren't there? Recently, our, our seven-year-old has been trying out jokes and he came up to me, yeah, it's always good, isn't it? He came up to me and he said, Dad, say two or three. And no, I could tell by his tone that this was a stitch up. So I kind of, I threw him a curveball and I said, four. And he's like, Dad, don't be like that. I said, Dad, <laughs> say two or three. So I took my medicine and I said, all right, two. And he said, poo. And then he said, then he said, Dad, say two or three. Now, I'm no fool. I'm not, I've already walked down the two line, so I'm not going to go down there again and get stitched up. So I thought, all right, let's see what happens when I open door number three. I said, three. And he said, we. <laughs> and then the jokes continued. He said, Dad, is the gate shut or is it open? And I said, it's shut. And he said, where am I pointing? And I said, up. He said, I may just say, shut up. You say not to swear. (laughs) My hands are in the air. Walked right into that one. Guilty. Got me. 
But as you were saying them, I was like, I remember these kind of jokes as a kid. And you thought you were so clever by getting someone to kind of walk down that line and then, and then stitch them up. And there were all these things as a parent that you see your kids walk through. You're like, oh, I remember that. Handball and all the rules with handball. Interference, that's still a rule. Rolls pick up, all that kind of stuff. There are all these phases that they go through, many of which you kind of remember from those childhood years. And so I wonder how many of us consider the Easter story to be kind of in that category of things. It's something that maybe it was a part of your childhood or maybe it wasn't, but it's something that you kind of grow out of. Yeah, there's a time when you believe in fairy tales, when you believe in the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy, and Jesus is kind of in that sort of group of things. But eventually, you grow up. You become rational, educated, scientific, and you leave that stuff behind and you get on with real life and you build a worldview that's actually going to work in the real world. But I want to put to you that the Easter story is not just another one of those things that we grow out of. And in fact, it's an answer to two deep and profound questions that I think our Western individualistic secular culture does not have a profound answer to. That it answers a question that needs answering. And so what I'm going to do is talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's probably no surprise on the Easter weekend. But what I usually do on Easter Sunday, at least some or part of the talk, is devoted to explaining why a modern, rational, scientific person could actually believe the historical evidence for the resurrection. But I'm not going to do that this year. And the reason I'm not going to is because I think there are rational, scientific, 21st century people, men and women, who both believe or disbelieve the resurrection. And 20 minutes kind of on a Sunday morning is probably not going to be the difference between the two. But I want to put to you a reason why it matters, what the Christian message has meant to followers of Jesus throughout the centuries, and why it is that the answers that the gospel has can be found nowhere else in our culture. They are profoundly true answers that can be found absolutely nowhere else. And so that's where I'm going to go this morning. My hope is that if you want to find out more whether or not this is true, that it would spark in your desire to work out, is this stuff not just something that's nice to believe, but actually historically true? And the way we're going to walk through this is by following the story of, of one character in the Bible called Peter. He was a follower of Jesus, a very close friend of Jesus, and he was a part of the group of 12 who followed Jesus around for three years of his life and heard everything that he taught and saw everything that he did. And we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, which is Matthew, one of those disciples, Matthew's account of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection. And in this section, Matthew's going to lay out for us a story that involves Peter that puts him in a pretty bad light. And the reason that I enjoy that is because that's very Australian to stitch up your mates like that, to write a story, but to make sure you include the details where your mate looks like a fool. And that's what Matthew's going to do here for Peter. So I'm going to read the section that Xenia read out to us just before from Matthew 16, 21. This is the part of the story. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, so that's the group of 12 and there were some more broadly than that, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this really is one of the first times that Jesus teaches about Easter, about what's going to happen. Jesus gets his disciples together and he says, I want you to know what's coming up. I'm going to go to Jerusalem 
And when I get there, the religious leaders are not going to take very kindly to me. They're going to have me arrested. They're going to have me killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And he says this to his group of disciples. And Peter is the first one to respond. And he says, no way. This is not what's going to happen. He says, you're not, this is not the way. You're, no, you're, you're the leader of God's people. You're the one who's going to save us. You're the one who's going to lead the revolution. As a Jewish person in the first century, the biggest thing you wanted to happen was to see your Roman oppressors cast out. And this guy Jesus comes along and his movement is building momentum. There's more and more people joining it all the time. And you're thinking, this is the guy who's finally going to get rid of the Romans. And that's what Peter's thinking. And so when Jesus says, actually, my life's going to be cut very short. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. Peter's like, no way. That is not the plan. And so he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus, if you notice, snaps back very quickly and says, get behind me, Satan. Not calling him Satan, but saying, that is not how things are going to go. He rebukes him in the strongest terms. Because at this point, Peter just cannot understand why Jesus would come and die. What's the point of that? And not only that, but we see through the, the story of Matthew that Peter continues not to understand this. He continues not to get it. See, Jesus promises that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested, and that's exactly what happens. And as the guards come out to arrest Jesus, Peter draws a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And at that point, Jesus takes him aside and says this to him. In Matthew 26, sentences 52 to 54, he says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? These guards come to arrest Jesus. He doesn't even put up a fight. He doesn't try to run, hide. He doesn't call his disciples to fight for him. In fact, one of them draws a sword to defend him, and he tells him not to and rebukes him. And he says to Peter, Peter, I'm a big boy. I can look after myself. I'm meant to be God as man. If I wanted to not die, I can do that. I could call a legion of angels to defend me. He says to Peter, this is not the way that I'm going to do things. And Peter just cannot get his head around it. He cannot understand why it is that Jesus would want to go to his death. And not only that, it gets worse. Look what happens just a little bit later in the chapter. In sentences 69 to 75, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. So Jesus has been arrested and he's currently on trial. And Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. And that means that's from a different region. They're currently now in Jerusalem. That's Galilee is further up north. It says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And he went out of the entrance, and another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them. Your accent betrays you. They're like, you've got a northern accent. We know you're with that group of people. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. At this point, Peter is so confused that within a matter of hours, he goes from fighting for Jesus to denying that he even knew him. Because the fact that Jesus has been arrested and looks like his death is imminent has completely thrown him. 
He's like, I've followed this guy with my whole life. I thought he was going to be the one who was going to save us from the Romans. And now he's about to die and he doesn't know what to do. And so here he denies even knowing Jesus, something that Jesus said would happen. And Peter is so confused by it all that he weeps bitterly. But the funny thing is that Peter doesn't stay here. The Easter story is that from here Jesus does die. He is crucified brutally, nailed to a Roman cross, which was the worst form of death reserved for the worst criminals, and yet Jesus was innocent of any charge under Roman law. But he dies, he is buried, and three days later he rises, and Peter meets the risen Lord Jesus face to face. And at that point, it all clicks for him. He finally gets it. Peter understands why it is that Jesus came, why he had to die, and why he had to rise again. And he becomes one of Jesus' most passionate followers, even following Jesus all the way to the point of death, that he dies early because he was testifying of Jesus. And he writes a letter, one that Xenia read out to us before, called 1 Peter, funnily enough. They didn't have very creative titles for letters back in the first century. So he, Peter wrote it, so it's called 1 Peter. And in that, he explains to us the meaning that he has come to understand about why Jesus died and why he rose again. And this is what Christians believe about Jesus' death and resurrection. And what we're going to see is that Jesus' death means redemption and his resurrection means hope. Jesus' death means redemption and his resurrection means hope. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 3.18. Peter writes, For Jesus died for sin, once for all, the innocent for the guilty, to bring you to God. This is how Peter now understands Jesus' death. He understands it not as an example, but as an exchange, a life for a life. It says Jesus died for sin, our sin, in our place. The guilty, us, for the innocent, him, swapping places. This is how he now understands that the, the, Jesus' death wasn't against his mission, it was his mission. Jesus came to do this, to die as an exchange for us. Many great leaders have led movements of non-violence and have died for their cause, and yet none of them understand their death the way that Jesus does. I was reminded of this recently. Our, our eldest son had to um, do a, a report, a presentation, on someone that they admired, and he chose Martin Luther King. We, we kind of chose it for him in a way. There was, he kind of went down a few wrong paths, so we just sort of helped him onto the right one. And so he did it on, on MLK and the Civil Rights Movement, and uh, our kids were shocked to find out that he was assassinated. And so he actually, I mean, once he was on the right path, he got into the project, right? But uh, he, he also had to dig through a bunch of, of um, MLK's quotes. And it was, it was common that Martin Luther King would talk about the need to be willing to die in order to bring about justice. Famously, he said that if you have never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. He spoke regularly and often about what kind of sacrifice would be required in order to see the civil rights movement through to its end. And he was willing to die for it. But here's the difference. While his death is an example of someone who is willing to die to bring about justice, Jesus' death was an exchange. MLK was willing to die, but he didn't want to. If it was necessary, he was willing to make that sacrifice but he didn't consider it necessary to the movement. In fact, to have had him around for longer would have had a profound impact on the civil rights movement. But Jesus saw his death as his mission because it was as an exchange, not an example. 
This is what Peter finally gets. This is why he tells us, Jesus came to die for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. His life for ours. Us who are guilty, who had sinned, which in the Bible just means we've lived life saying that either God does not exist or might as well not exist, and thank you very much, I'll live my own life. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from our maker and our creator, and the penalty is separation from him forever in death. And Jesus comes and he dies in our place. It was the great exchange. But more than that, the Christian belief is that Jesus died so that God would welcome you in as his own child, love you, and treat you like his own innocent son and daughter. What we're talking about here is redemption. The idea of going from a life marked by guilt or brokenness to one marked by being loved as an innocent child of God. Now you might think, well, that, that's fine. But look, to be honest, I don't really feel the need to be forgiven by some imaginary God out there. But I think deep down, all of us have a sense that we are deeply flawed and we have a deep desire to be clean or pure or good. And I was struck by this in an unexpected place recently. Well, not so recently. It was probably a couple of years ago now. When I, I watched a documentary called Free Solo. Has anyone, just to give me a bit of a, a heads up as to how many people are familiar with this. Okay, great. So for, for the both of you, this is going to be great. <laughs> but Free Solo is it's a documentary about uh, Alex Honnold, who's the first free soloer, however you say it, to climb El Capitan. And if that doesn't strike you as particularly amazing, two things that are worth knowing. Free soloing is rock climbing without any safety gear or ropes. So you climb and you make a mistake and you die. That's the simple, the long and the short of it. There aren't many rules to it. But also El Capitan is 3,000 plus feet of sheer rock face. And so that's why this is such an extraordinary achievement. Now if you're sitting there thinking, why would anyone risk life and limb to do this? then you're into the documentary. And as you, as you go through it, what becomes clear is his motivation for this. Because he starts talking about how he grew up in a house where perfection was expected. And he says phrases that were, were common in his household were things like, near enough never is, or good enough never is. And what he feels when he completes a climb, a free solo climb, is that you have to execute a perfect climb with no mistakes. Literally, you, you won't survive if you do make a mistake. So you literally have to, perfect, you have to complete a perfect climb in order to make it out alive. And he says the feeling at the top is the sense that for just a moment, you have done something absolutely perfect, that you are complete, perfect. And it's that sensation that drives him. And this is why people crave success, isn't it? It's that moment when you feel like, for just a second, I've done something perfectly. You land the account, you make partner, you complete the PhD, you win a university medal, a gold medal, whatever it is. For just a second, you feel like my life has been redeemed. I've done something perfectly. But the problem is that the feeling fades. And as they mention in the documentary, as his partner mentions, the problem with every time he completes a more and more extreme climb is that he needs to do something more extreme to top it next time. Because that feeling comes and then it goes. And so it goes with success. That we, we desire to have this sense that I've done something right, that I'm good all the way down to my core, that I'm free from my flaws. And we crave that. And if it's not in success, sometimes it's in relationships. 
in his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker talks about the modern obsession with love and romance. And he says it's the same desire. Look at this quote from his book. He says, and this is a, not a Christian guy, just a psychologist saying, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give this. So often, the modern desire for a relationship is the desire to have someone who just looks at me and sees me as completely perfect. A sense that would give me the, the sense that I'm free of all of my flaws, that I'm clean, pure, redeemed. But again, our human partnerships often let us down. They're broken, we're broken, and it's not long into the relationship that you realize this. Why do Christians love the cross, the story of Jesus' death? Because it means redemption. That our sin is washed away, that we are made new in Jesus. We are finally redeemed. And I think this is something that even as a secular culture we long for. How many of our movies, TV shows, every Clint Eastwood movie is about redemption. It's a guy who's lived a train wreck of a life and at the end he has one final act of sacrifice to make, for, make up for all of it and his life is redeemed. And even if you're not in the Clint Eastwood movies, how many of the movies, TV shows, books are all on this theme of a character doing something to redeem their life? We long for it. And in the gospel, we have it. Jesus, God himself, came down to redeem us from sin. So that's the first part. Jesus' death means redemption. But the second part of Easter is, of course, the resurrection. And Peter writes about this too in his letter. In 1 Peter 1.3, he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection means hope. Jesus died, and the claim of the Scriptures is that he rose again, not just in our hearts or not just as a legend or a fable, but physically rose again, that he actually defeated death. And if this is true, it means that anyone who believes in him will live also forever. To live with him in a world where there is no sin and pain and brokenness and decay. And Peter says it's this hope that brings life. It's a living hope. It brings meaning and joy to life now. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It transforms how you live right now. Because hope is the certainty that your best days are still ahead of you and not behind you. And the opposite is true. Despair is the belief that all the best things that were going to happen in my life have already happened and I've somehow passed the point of no return and all of the good things have happened somewhere in the past and there is none of that or very little of it left in the future. And see, we live in a secular society that, that means that majority of people believe that all the meaning, happiness, joy that's to be found in life is found somewhere between birth and death. There is no life beyond that. There's no meaning beyond that. There's no uh, um, certainty beyond that. And what this does is it creates an incredible pressure to live your best life right now. You've got one shot at it, and if you miss your shot, that's it. You don't get another one. There's no chance to make up for it. And in wealthy countries where you have a lot of opportunities and options, this can be quite crippling because it can even, even if you are happy with your life, you're always haunted by the thought that maybe I could be living better. I like my job, but what if there was a better one? I like my partner, but what if there was a better one? I like my house, but what if there was a better one? And we are crippled by the sense that we may not be getting all out of life that we could be because this is our one shot to get it right. And it's led to a phenomenon called the midlife crisis. 
And I should know about that because I'm approaching midlife. I guess I am. I'm 38, right? Two years to go. I'm pretty much there. But it's led to a phenomenon called the midlife crisis, which kind of tends to be somewhere around the middle of life, if 80 is kind of a, a standard portion, that somewhere around the middle, you take stock of what you've done and you see how life is tracking and you get a sense of like, are things going to get better or are they going to get worse? And it leads to this kind of intense crisis. And many years ago, a guy called, a, scr a screenwriter called Charlie Kaufman wrote a script called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which was the story of Chuck Barris, who was, he kind of, he created kind of, uh, TV game shows like The Dating Show. Look, basically, if you want to blame maths on anyone, it goes all the way back to him, where he would put people on screen and exploit them for other people's laughter. And, uh, and going all the way back to this, he lived a pretty successful life. But the weird thing was, at the end of his life, he wrote a biography where he gave details of an account that basically his whole life, yeah, he did game shows on the side, but basically he was a CIA agent. And during the Cold War, he was an operative, you know, undercover, behind the Iron Curtain, all this sort of stuff. And of course, it was outrageous and no one believed it. But Charlie Kaufman, a screenwriter, thought, well, what if I wrote a movie like we actually did believe it? But the starting scene is very telling. It starts with Chuck Barris, a disheveled man, naked in his own uh, lounge room, kind of with his voiceover kind of haunting it. And Chuck Barris says this, the character, he says, when you are young, your potential is infinite. You might do anything, really. You might be Einstein, you might be DiMaggio. And then you get to an age where what you might be gives way to what you have been. You weren't Einstein, you weren't anything. And that's a bad moment. And it's Kaufman's way of saying that he thinks that at the end of Barris's life, he took stock of it all and thought it wasn't good enough. And he tried to write himself a new story where he was a CIA agent. But most of us have some kind of script for our life, whether we know it or not, whether we've said it or not, where we kind of expect life is going to go a certain way. But at some point, all of us have a moment, and I didn't think it would be like this moment. A moment where we just think, I, didn't think, I don't know how it was supposed to go, but I didn't think it would be like this. I didn't think I'd be this age and single. I didn't think marriage would be quite like this. I didn't think family life would be like this. I didn't think my career would be like this, or I did, but I kind of thought when I got there, it would be more fulfilling, and somehow it kind of isn't. And that's a hard moment. When you get to that point where you, you say to yourself, I didn't think it would be like this, and I don't know what to do about it. Because if this life is all we've got, and I've blown my shot, then there's nothing left. Peter says the message of Easter, the resurrection is that there is hope. That there is a life beyond this one because of Jesus. That anyone who believes in him will know life and life eternal. And because of that, you have a living hope. Because the thing about hope is it takes joy from the future and brings it into the now. When we're all in lockdown, you could actually gain enjoyment from thinking about what you would do on the other side of it. Now, of course, it didn't quite work out how we were all anticipating sort of this time last year. I don't know how it was for you, but I kind of thought it would sort of end sharply and it would be like, when we won the war and everyone goes out into the streets. And it it kind of didn't quite work out exactly like that. It was a little bit more drawn out and a bit more like everyone sort of emerged slowly bleary-eyed, having watched a lot of Netflix and just being like, what happened? But even just thinking about a future joy brings joy forward into the present. That's why Peter is saying this is a living hope. That for the Christians, what has sustained the, the Christian community through many centuries and difficulty and hardship is thinking on the future joy with Jesus. 
knowing that if the resurrection is true, that we will live for him forever, and it brings joy into now. It is a living hope. And so this is why the Easter message is so important to Christians and has been and has been passed down through centuries and generations and across borders and ethnicities. It's a message that's resonated with more cultures, languages and communities than any other world religion because at the heart of it, Jesus' death means redemption and his resurrection means hope. And so if you're here and someone who's unconvinced can I encourage you, we do something called Introducing Jesus, which starts on the first Monday of May. And it's five nights having a meal together because that's the best space for having good conversation about deep ideas. And over those, those couple of nights, we're actually going to be digging into whether or not you can actually believe that the resurrection is true and everything else to do with Jesus' life and his teaching and his ministry. And I just encourage you, if you wanted to come along to that, to put that on the slip later or to scan. There's like a QR code on the back of one of those slips for Introducing Jesus. We'd love to have you with us for that. So we believe there is no message deeper than the gospel message of hope. And if you are here and a follower of Jesus, may it be the case that your life is marked by a living hope. That your best days, no matter how bad the days you are in right now, that your best days are still ahead of you. That what Jesus won through his death and resurrection cannot be taken from you, even in death. That there is a joy and a meaning to life no matter what has happened or how your life has been. That you can know genuine redemption and genuine hope. May it be the case that we'd be a people marked by the joy of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you're a God who reveals himself. That you didn't sit idly in heaven and leave us here to work things out by ourselves. But you sent Jesus to die in our place, to redeem us, to rise again that we might have a living hope in all of this, that we might glorify you as God. And Father, we just pray that we'd be marked by joy and by hope, knowing that you are a good and gracious God. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.